Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for the privilege to be together to sing these songs and to be reminded of why you came to not just be caught up in a sentimental moment, but to look beyond that to uh, the reality of your entrance into this world. Thank you, God, that you came to suffer and die, that we might not have to suffer and die, and that we could be set free, forgiven, given hope and joy. It is good news of great joy. Thank you, God, that we get to sing and celebrate that and, and, and just be in your word now, God. May our time together be rich and sweet. May it fill us with meaning and purpose as we consider the advent of Christ this morning. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Well, I would ask you this morning to take your Bibles and open them to Isaiah 53. As we're continuing our Advent study here, prepare, thinking about how the scriptures talk of the entrance of Jesus into the world. Uh, we are looking here at Isaiah 53, and, uh, and, and as we look at Advent and the prophets, how they prophesy the suffering of Jesus. As I was studying this passage this week, Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6, my mind reflected on a story from my past, uh, an event, an argument I had with my parents, actually. And uh, what had happened was I was 16, I had my driver's license, I had a job at the mall, and... Uh, and I was kind of convinced that I needed my own car. That, that made sense. I had a driver's license, so I should have a car. And uh, I was uh, going, to one of my, going to my friend's house, and as I was passing, uh, going down one road, I saw a Ford Mustang. And I thought, this is it. The answer to my prayers is right here. I need this, this car is here, and, and it was at an affordable price. And that was an older model Ford Mustang, which is exactly what God would want me to have. And so it was pretty clear. So I went home and I made the appeal to my parents. I said, hey, you know, and I, I had this all worked out. I figured it out, how I was going to appeal to them. And, and, and I recall, this was a long time ago, but I recall saying something along the lines of, you know, hey, I'm using your car and sometimes I have the car and I'm working and, and then you don't have access to it and da 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 And, you know, there's this car. It's only, you know, $700 and it's, you know, it's a Ford Mustang, which is a really good car. And, you know, and I made the case. And, uh, you know, you don't have to work real hard to figure out where this went, right? They, they were like, no, you can't have the car. And uh, so... I made my case again, and they, uh, they made their case, and then I came up with a brand new strategy that uh, I hadn't been applying, in, uh, putting into place at this point. My new strategy was, maybe if I make my case but only do it louder, that would help, right? So maybe if I just start yelling at my parents, right? Because somehow, I, you think as a kid, that works, right? You know, like, at 16, you think, if I yell, they'll definitely go, oh, hey, our fault, tear our clothes, sackcloth and ashes, you're right, we repent, have the car, right? That's what you're thinking will happen, so you just start yelling, right? And, and then, of course, you can imagine how this is going. They're making their case. I am not listening to their case at all, because I'm right. 
<laughs> that's, that's how I'm thinking. I'm right. And so they're, they're talking. I'm waiting for them to finish talking so that I can make my case even louder. And this thing is just starting to un- unravel. And I remember saying to my parents something along this line. I'm sure if I asked my dad, he would, you know, remind me of exactly what I said, if he remembered. But, but I remember saying something along the line. You better have a good reason for telling me no. <laughs> like that works, right? You know, like it's just, <laughs> you know what you think is a, like a good approach at 16 is so off, right? So you better have a good reason for telling me no. And uh, all I remember is I got in a boatload of trouble for that. I mean, it was just bad and it was like it went from, like, asking to buy a car to, like, losing access to the car forever. You know, like, it just got, you know, you're not even going to go to work. I mean, this was bad, you know, because I'm pointing my finger, and, and it, was, it, was, it was ugly. The reason why I thought about this is because I was thinking about the fact that when the world kind of falls apart around us, sometimes we as humans kind of treat God the way I was treating my parents. And we kind of want God to give an account for things. Like, why is this going this way? Why is the world going in the direction it's headed? Why, God, haven't you done this? Why haven't you responded? You know, you better have a good reason for acting the way that you do, God. You better have a good reason. You know, if I were God, I would do this and I would do this and I would wipe this out and I would change this law. And, right? and, and sometimes, as humans, we have this thought that, that we could kind of stand face-to-face with God and say, you know, you better, you better give an account to me, God. Because right now, it seems like you're losing. It seems like you're ineffective. It seems like this isn't working. It seems like your, your, your response to this world is taking us backwards, not forwards. When I look at my life, I look at my relationships, I look at what's going on around me, I'm not in a better place today than I was 10 years ago. God, you better respond to this. And there's many people who want God to give an account to them. But the question on the table is, what if God's response to this world is so outside the box, you would never believe it? You know, my parents were sparing me. How could I, earning probably $3 an hour back then, you know, working a minimum wage job at the mall, how could I have afforded a car that was a broken down Ford Mustang. There's <laughs> a reason why there was a $700 price tag on this thing. Right? I couldn't afford the gas. I couldn't afford the insurance. There's no way I could afford the upkeep. At $3 an hour? I mean, I would get paychecks in sometimes on a high week at like $40. They can't cover anything. Yet in my brain, the world was much simpler than that. I would get a car and I would drive it. That's all there was to my thought. But my parents said, well, there's way more than you need to think about here. You are like thinking through this very narrow lens. We're thinking through this much wider lens. And we realize you can't afford it. And the reality is we would have to buy this thing for you. We would have to maintain it for you. And if we're going to buy a car, we're not buying a broken down Ford Mustang. No matter how cool it looks. It did have T-tops, by the way. Okay. It was really cool. Aftermarket ones, which means they were leaking. Anyways. But here's the reality. My parents were saving me from something, but I couldn't see it. What if God's response to this world is so outside the box 
You can't see it. That is actually the Christmas message, whether you know it or not. You know, we could sit with people. We can go to a holiday concert, and people will sing all these Christmas songs. And, and they don't even believe in God, but they'll sing these Christmas songs. And they have no idea that what they're singing about is God's response to the wickedness and evil in the world. And they can't see it. Because it's so wide. It's so big. It's so outside of the purview. Much like me, I didn't really understood what, understand what it, what it took to, to maintain a car at 16. My parents saw more than I saw. This is what Christmas is about. God is responding way outside the box. This is what the message of the prophets teach. This is what Isaiah 53 teaches. We're looking here at this advent in the prophets today. And as we look at this, we're going to see that God is responding to this world in what I'm going to simply call an unbelievable plan. Prophets will actually say this. People don't believe it. God's response to the problems of the world is a response no one believes. But this unbelievable plan has an incredible purpose to it. To actually change the world. I want you to see this today because I want you to understand that we are in a very unique time in history. Probably every pastor says that at every moment in life. But, but I look at our time and I say, wow, we live in a really unique time in history, don't we? We, we live in a time where the world is shifting and changing all around us. We live in a time where there's war. We live in a time where there's chaos. We live in a time where there's fear. People are afraid to go in the public spaces for fear of terrorism. There's all kinds of stuff going on. Our moral footing has is, is been lost, and we don't know which way is up and down. We live in this time where we're just not certain. There's a major fear and uncertainty in the world. And God has actually addressed that in the Christmas story. But people don't see it. We're going to see it today, Lord willing. And I want to show it to you because I want it to not only cause you to maybe widen your view of Christmas, not only maybe give you a little bit of certainty and hope, but hopefully challenge you to see how you can actually be an agent of spreading this message to the world which is what we're supposed to do with it. So let's look at it here. Let's look at God's unbelievable plan. We've been cycling through the Old Testament, seeing how it talks about the coming of the Messiah. Here we are in Isaiah 53, and, uh, and we're looking at this incredible section. And, and, and before we even look at, at our first uh, verse here that we're going to unpack here this morning, I want to set the context for Isaiah 53. I want, I want you to see it because I think you'll identify with this context. The book of Isaiah was written at a really tumultuous time in, in Israel's history. The, Israel was in a civil war. The north and the south was separated, and they were fighting against each other. The northern part of Israel had developed an alliance with, with uh, Syria, and, uh, and they, were, they were attempting, I'm sorry, with us, Syria, and they were attempting to threaten to attack the southern city the southern uh, part of Israel. Uh, the, both the north and the south had lost sight of God. Neither one of their kings wanted to serve God. The priests had become all perverted in their practices. The people just 
we're operating with, with hatred towards each other. So internally, there's strife. There's no moral center anymore. No one could tell what was right or wrong. Externally, there was civil war. The Assyrians were, were, were ready to come down and take over the area. And, and off in the distance were the Babylonians that were forming and growing into the most dangerous army up until that point in history. Everybody was waiting for war. They knew that something was coming, but as they were waiting, they were dealing with their own internal conflicts and their own fighting and their own political issues. The rich were taking advantage of the poor. The poor were being left on the street. There was homelessness everywhere. It was bad. It was bad. Not much different than in many places of the world today. It was bad. Fear of Suffering and death, economic collapse, all kinds of stuff going on. The world was in turmoil. Isaiah's writing this letter and he's saying, he's writing to the, to, to the southern kingdom and he's saying, guys, just trust in me. God is telling you, trust in me. And the king of the southern kingdom says, no, I won't. I have no desire to trust in you. I'm doing it my way. Your way stinks, God. I want it my way. I have my plan. This is my plan. This is my agenda. And God says, you don't understand. I am going to intervene in this world. I'm going to intervene. And the people said, but God, we don't like the way you're intervening. We want to do it our way. We'd rather intervene through our purposes. And so God begins to unfold how he's going to intervene. And starting in chapter 40, he begins to unveil this intervention. And it leads us to 53, verse 1. Let's read it together. He says, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He asks two questions there. The first question he asks is, Who has believed what he's heard from us? Here's what he means by this. The psalmist, or Isaiah, is actually asking this question. God is talking about the servant who's going to come, and he's going to do all these things. But all these things that the servant's going to do doesn't seem like it's going to help. Right? I mean, when you're talking about war and you're talking about, about nations coming down and wiping you out and you're talking about being on the verge of economic collapse and you're, you're talking about moral calamity everywhere and you're talking about crime running rampant and you're talking about leaders that are, that are all messed up. And then God says, well, actually, what's going to happen is I'm going to shoot this you know, root out of, out, of, out, of, out of the trunk, and this root is just going to be this kind of no-name, obscure root who is going to suffer. That's my strategy. And everybody goes, what? That's, that's it, God? You better have a good reason for that response, God. That seems ineffective. Doesn't seem right. That's why the psalm says, Who has believed what he's heard from us? We don't believe that that's enough. No one believes. He asks a second question. Notice the second question. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What's he saying here? The arm of the Lord is when you see that in the Old Testament. It's, it's oftentimes referring to his power, his judgment, his justice. That, that side of him that's going to come in and conquer. And so when you are facing all kinds of calamity and you've got bad rulers and nations that want to attack you and you're crumbling from the inside, you want God to come in with a heavy fist and say, stop it. 
You want them to crush the Assyrians. You want them to crush Syria. You want them to drive the northern kingdom into repentance. You want them to clean up the mess in the southern kingdom. And you want them to knock Babylon into tomorrow. That's what you want. You want the arm of the Lord to show up. Because the arm of the Lord is the power of God. The, the warrior side of God. So he says, okay, he's revealed the warrior side. But no one has believed that this is the way he's choosing to reveal all of his power. It's going to be revealed in a way that you won't believe. You won't believe it. Notice how he unfolds it. Look at verse 2. You see in verse 2, most of your translations have a 4 in front of it. And, and just again, a little Bible study tip. When you see a 4, it's explaining something. It's giving you a rationale. And so he asked these two questions. Who's believed what they heard? And, and, and who is the one that the arm of the Lord has been revealed? Let me explain to you who this one is getting the arm of the Lord. And by implication, let me show you why no one believes it. That this is actually God's, this is actually God's answer to the world's problem. This is his answer. He says in verse 2, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. It's a pretty interesting description. The arm of the Lord has been revealed. And who? This person who shoots up like a young plant, meaning the coming out of this dry ground will come this one. Okay, so the dry ground is Israel. Everything's bad, right? It's just, it's bad everywhere. But it's going to come this little shoot. But let me tell you about this shoot. Uh, he's going to be unassuming. He will not be a great leader from all appearances. Uh, he, he will have no form. He will come from obscurity. And people will look at him and they will pass him by. This will not be the solution to your problem. When you see this guy at 15 years old walking down the road, you're not going to go, there's the answer to our problem. You're going to walk past him. You won't even notice him. He's going to be obscure. Right? Nothing about him that's going to be intense. You're not, you're not going to be drawn to this leader at all. You know, some guys walk in and they, and they have kind of that power. You know, there are some people in the world that when they walk in, they're, they have a look where you go, wow, man, you, you just, I want to follow you. I don't even know who you are, but I'm just going to start following you around the mall because you're just, you're a leader, you know. There's some people who evoke that. This one won't. You won't want to follow him. Okay? He had no form. He had no majesty. I look at him. No beauty. He's going to be instead despised and rejected. He's going to be a man of grief. He's going to suffer. He's going to suffer to such a degree that you're actually going to turn away from him. Now, I want, to, I want you to notice something in this text. Notice again the way that this is written. He says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. Notice how it's all written in the past tense. This event hasn't taken place yet, written in the past tense. Now, there's a reason why. There's a little, little grammatical thing going on here. Two things you need to notice. First thing is, sometimes when prophecies are written about Jesus, they are written in the past tense in the Old Testament. This is just a little extra theological freebie for you here today. It's written in the, old, it's written in the past tense. The reason why, it's called in, theolo in theological terms, the prophetic past. That's what it's called, the prophetic past. It means this. The prophets were so certain 
that this was going to happen, that they wrote about it as if it already happened. And whenever prophets are writing with certainty about something, they write it in the past tense to make the emphasis, this is going to happen. It's so certain I write in the past. There are certain prophecies that when they're written in the past tense, you'll discover all of the prophecies written about Jesus are past tense, written in the past tense, called the prophetic past. Because this is how certain this was God. God is making the point, this is my plan. But I do want you to notice a little grammar shift here. Okay? For all you grammar people, notice it's all past tense until the very last line. And we esteemed him not. Suddenly it's in the present tense. That little shift is important. And that shift is important for a reason. What it's trying to point out to us is that, yes, this is certain. But even after this happens, people will not see it as being the solution to the world's problems. People will not make the entrance of Christ into the world, the advent of Jesus, the coming of Christ in the world, and look at it and say, that's it. That's our hope. Even us, as we're going to see as the text unfolds, even to those of us who have been blessed by this, we don't necessarily think about the fact that the world is on fire today. And boy, we're right at Christmas time. What a great thing, man, because this is the answer to the world's problems. Our brain doesn't make that connect sometimes. We'll acknowledge his death. We'll acknowledge his entrance. We'll acknowledge his death. But then sometimes it's easy for us to think, if only we had this kind of president then the world would be saved. If only we had this kind of political party in place. If only we had this political ideology, this would solve our problem. It's easy for us to go there. It's easy for us to go there. We esteem him not. We don't look at him. We are included in those that when we see this plan, we don't even believe it. We acknowledge it, but we don't believe it in the way that that God's intending this plan to be. You see, it's God's unbelievable plan. God's agenda was to take the arm of the Lord, that part of his response that was going to crush the problems of the world, and bring it in through this baby. And so Christmas time is the celebration of not just the entrance of God to the world. Yes, that's true. But we could say it more clearly this way. It's the entrance of the arm of the Lord to the world. Or the entrance of God's solution to terrorism. How do we get that? This is what Isaiah is teaching. You should study this book. The context of Isaiah is the exact same context of our world today. This is how God has chosen to respond. Now let's unfold it. Let's see. Let's go from the unbelievable plan to the incredible purpose. How in the world does this solve the problem? How does this become the solution? Okay, let's look at verse 4 together. He says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God by God, and afflicted. Very powerful verse there. First notice, it begins with the word surely... In the ESV, not all the translations have that, but you have some form of that word. It's a word of certainty. It's saying this is exactly what he's doing. 
when he enters into the world, the arm of the Lord is going to be revealed, not politically first. This is the key. It's not coming politically first. It's coming personally. It's coming personally. And it's so certain because here's what he's done. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now, what does that mean? Let me kind of explain this to you. The word grief, some of you might have, he bore our diseases. Some older translations use that. That's actually the word there. It means it's the word disease. But sometimes for us, the reason why some translations put the word grief there is because when we think of diseases, you know, I mean, we think of like a cold or we think of, you know, some kind of physical affirmity. The word actually means kind of the root cause is what it means. The source of something. If I have a tumor in my head that's going to cause a headache, the disease is the tumor. The root of it is the tumor. The, the symptoms is the headache. Okay? The word disease is the root. It's like what you're actually going after. He bore the root of the sin problem in the world. That's what it's saying. This is deeper than God taking away my cold. That's why translators try to get away from the word disease because we only think of it in terms of sicknesses. We don't think of it as a root, defined as a root problem. He bore the root cause. This is an amazing statement because here's what he's saying. You know, you could wipe out the Babylonians. You could wipe out the Assyrians. You could wipe out any evil thing in the world. You could wipe out the Nazis. You can wipe out the communists. You can, whatever you want to wipe out. But you're not changing men's hearts. Right? You're not changing anybody's hearts. Some other movement takes the place. Right? Historically, it doesn't take a huge history buff to figure that out. You wipe out an ideology, that's a good thing, but you're not changing people's hearts, so people will look for another ideology. This is saying the arm of the Lord is being revealed in a way more powerful way because it's actually going in and addressing the root cause of the problem. Your heart. This is true in every situation. If everybody would look, if you could start in the smallest fear, just your life, conflict at your work, conflict in your home, conflict with the community, conflict in the world, and we kind of you know, spread out. The problem isn't your spouse. The problem isn't your boss. The, pro- the problem is you. Because what would happen if you chose a posture of forgiveness and service? to a horrible boss. How bad would work be? Right? If you said, wow, I work for this guy who like is like Nebuchadnezzar Jr. He's a madman. He's a nut. I work for this guy. God's given me maximum opportunity to show forgiveness. What happens if that was your heart? Then you would get up every day going, man, I get a great, an opportunity to forgive today. Well, that would change your perspective on work, wouldn't it? Right? It's amazing to think about that. He actually can do that so that you would actually think that way. So that you wouldn't say, God, fix this person, fix that person, fix my environment, fix my finances, fix this, fix that, everything outside of me. Fix, 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 fix. No, he came in to deal with you so that you would be content in him and him alone. So if you're poor, you're poor. If you're rich, you're rich. If you have, you don't have... If you're ugly, you're ugly. If you're good-looking, you're good-looking. It doesn't really matter now. I'm not putting anything in that anymore. It doesn't matter anymore. 
The disease has been fixed. That's what he did. He bore our disease is what he's saying. This is how the arm of the Lord is being revealed. God is using his power to change me and to change you. And then he says that he carries our sorrows. The sorrows then are all of the consequences that come because of the griefs, right? I go through life as a self-centered, narcissistic person. I want you to serve me. I want this person. I want my boss to give me this. I'm not getting honored enough. I'm not getting enough raises. I'm not getting enough this. Everybody's just messing me over. The whole world's out to get me. And you know what happens when you have that worldview? You know what happens. Your life stinks, right? It's a horrible life. No one wants to live that kind of life, right? You live that kind of life. You end up hating everybody and everybody hates you. And then you start doing really dumb things because you're acting out of your selfishness. And we have all of these sorrows. And so he's saying, here's what happened. The arm of the Lord has come in. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to bear that and he's, he's going to bear the grief. He's actually going to take that grief and put it upon himself. Take the sorrows, all the consequences of your sin, and put them upon ourselves. I'll give you the theological term for this. It's called vicarious. We Sometimes you hear Jesus, uh, the cross is a, a vicarious act. It meaning this, vicarious means that he literally is taking that from you, placing it onto him. That's the arm of the Lord. What the arm of the Lord said is, I am actually going to come up with a way. I'm going to use all my power and strength to come up with a way of actually taking your sin and placing it onto my son. So that you can be changed and forgiven. But he did all this. Notice what it says, though. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now, what's he saying? That yet kind of sets up a contrast. The contrast he's, he's getting, as we'll see this text unfold, is this. He's saying that <clears throat> we see this. He's speaking in the present tense, by the way. And he's saying, we're going to see this. We're going to hear this. We're going to hear that he bears our grief. He bears our sorrow. And, and he's saying, here's going to be our response. Yeah, Jesus died. Absolutely, died on the cross. Died for me. Absolutely. I see it. He was there. God was punishing him. We see it. But we're not making the connect yet. We're not making the connect. We're acknowledging that he came. We're acknowledging that he suffered. We see it. But it hasn't connected yet. Because we're not understanding this is God's solution. And you say, well, how, how come? How do you know that that's the truth? Because I would say this. And I would say this about our culture, right? I'll, I'll speak about our American culture today. We can get really emotional if our candidate doesn't win, right? Really emotional about it. And in that emotion, we'd have to ask ourselves an honest question. Did I see that candidate as being the hope for the world? Me, who celebrates Christmas and Easter? Me, who says Jesus died on a cross? Me, who's got like a million crosses that I wear on my clothes? It's on the front of my Bible. You know? Me, who would never go to a church that wouldn't preach Jesus and him crucified. But yet, was my hope in a political party? Is that where my hope was? That's it. That's what he's saying. Yeah, oh yeah, he died. Absolutely. Yet, we see it. But then notice verse 5. 
But, he says, there's a contrast. But do you understand what he's really doing? Do you see how this is the arm of the Lord? He's setting up the contrast. Yes, okay, he did it. And yeah, you see it. But do you understand what he's doing? And this is what, 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 what Isaiah is saying in verse 5. But do you understand he was pierced for your transgressions? He was crushed for your iniquities. Do you get that? Do you see how that that is the monumental change of the world? This is the Christmas story. This is what this is about. Do you get this? Do you get it? He uses two words there, transgressions and iniquities. He's trying to make the point. And he's using really specific terms to do it. Transgression means this. That's that side of us that kind of pushes the law. Pushes the law. You know, how much sin can you get away with and still be a Christian? The idea of a transgression. I remember in our household, we used to have this rule. No one could tickle anyone because, hey, I had two brothers and we would like, they would tickle unto death, right? I mean, it was bad, right? When brothers would attack brothers, right? You don't just tickle and say, oh, isn't it cute? He's laughing. It's more like, I want to torture him, right? So brothers go after brothers. So we had this rule, no tickling. And so we'd be in the backseat of the car driving somewhere. And what would my brother do? He'd take his hand and he'd kind of go over my belly and he'd be like, I'm not tickling you. I'm not tickling you. I'm not touching you, right? Get as close as he could, right? I'm not touching you. And he'd get his finger right up to my face. I'm not touching him. I'm following the rules, right? That's a transgression, okay? That's a transgression, okay? That's not advice, kids, by the way. Don't don't be taking notes there, okay? That's what we do to God is what he's saying. God says, I want you to love and forgive, but I can't in this situation. Right? We push against God's law. And he's saying, God knows that. He knows that that's what we do. He knows that's in the heart of every human being. He knows that. And so he sends his son to be punished for that. He was crushed for our iniquities. Iniquities is, is the reflection of your nature. It's just kind of what leaks out of you when, when you lose self-control. Right when when suddenly you think you're alone and you you know and you're and the stuff starts coming out of your mouth, actions start happening, you start doing things, and he's saying, "Listen, that element of how you respond to God and what comes out of you, do you understand? This is how the arm of the Lord's been revealed. He was revealed this way. Why? So what could happen? So that the consequences of that sin would be brought onto Jesus." So that two things could happen. Peace and healing. You see that right there in the text. Is that exactly what the world needs? Could you imagine this? The world needs peace. And the world needs healing. God's plan was not to send a political leader to rally the troops and get everybody around a central thought. And to get everybody going. That wasn't his plan. His plan was to send someone who would come out of obscurity, that would enter into the world and, and you know, accomplish very little, what appears to be, and then be crushed and consequenced. So that vicariously, all of this sin that's in me and you would be placed on him. He would be punished. And then we could actually have peace. Real, true, lasting peace. And we can be healed. So that we don't have to be dogged by all the sin that comes. People can be healed. Nations can be healed. Cultures can be healed. You can literally make, out of warring parties, one new man. 
This is the message Paul preached even to the Jews and the Gentiles that were fighting. And, and he says, do you understand in Jesus one new man? You can be one now. You, we're not, we don't have to be defined by these cultures anymore. We don't have to look and say, there's the enemy or there's the enemy or there's the enemy. I can be healed. They can be healed. We can be set free. We can have peace. This is how God chose to reveal the arm of the Lord. This is the solution to the problem. And so he summarizes his point in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Here's the problem, right? The problem is we turn to our own way. The problem is, is that even if you wipe out the current military threat, another one is waiting because all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone turns to his own way. But the arm of the Lord was revealed so that the sin of all of those people can be placed onto Jesus He could suffer and die, and God can transform those people and make them brand new. That is the Christmas story. The question now is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do we see this as being the answer? Right now, as crazy as the world is, and as much as politics is, and and on the talk shows and stuff, they're talking about all these issues... We're sitting here at Christmas time and we've got hope, love, joy, and peace. We're proclaiming it. We're singing the song. You go to Christmas places. You walk down downtown Sycamore and they're playing Christmas you know, songs, joy to the world. And all these great things are going on and, and, and the Christmas songs are being sung. And yet there's the answer. That's just not a sentimental thing here. This is the answer to the world's problem. Isaiah says, who believed it? Who believes it? Who actually believes that this is how the arm of the Lord was chosen to be revealed? See, the problem in the world is not politics. The problem is our hearts. It's our hearts. And the solution is the entrance of Jesus, the arm of the Lord to the world. So what does this mean? Let's kind of apply this here. Let me help you kind of take this into your life. I want to deal with it first personally. I want you just to stop to realize that, that you as a person and the people in your life that are around you right now, this is the real answer to the problem. This is the honest answer. This is where the hope of the world comes in, that you can be set free, that Jesus came into the world to actually allow you to be healed from the consequences and the pain of your sin, to set you free from the burden, the bondage, the bitterness, the, the family fighting, the issues, the, the, the pain, the misery, and all the stuff that sometimes gets surfaced, especially at Christmas time, that he has come to say, I'm setting you free. This is, this is why I came. This is why I came. This is the whole point of Christmas, is to come in the world to heal you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he took your sin, placed it on himself so that you could be set free? What about a, I was thinking, by the way, this week I read the story. Some of you are probably more familiar with this than I am. Um, do you remember that serial killer in the 70s, Son of Sam, David Berkowitz? Some of you probably know his story. I knew a little bit of it, read a little bit of the story this week. He was a serial killer in the 1970s. He believed he was worshiping this, this uh, demon called Sam, and he called himself the Son of Sam. And he was going through New York killing people, starting buildings on fire, doing all kinds of horrible things, leaving these really you know, scary, 
you know, demonic notes and all this kind of stuff. And, and he gets caught, gets arrested, thrown in prison. And, uh, and now, now he's in prison. People are trying to kill him because your street cred in prison goes up if you kill a serial killer. And so people are trying to kill him in prison now. And, you know, it's just, you know, things are just bad to worse. And one day he's walking around the yard and he said, somebody comes up to him and says, hey, you know, God loves you. He's like, no way. God doesn't love me. I worship Satan. Like, what are you talking about God loves me? I've murdered people. He says, no, God loves you. And then he handed him one of those little Gideon Bibles with the New Testament and the Psalms. He said, just start reading the Psalms. We'll talk. He starts reading the Psalms. He starts hearing a message of truth, bows his knee, repents. And he's been in prison since 78 or 80 or something like that, you know, for quite a while. And he's been preaching the gospel since 1987. You know, he redeemed him. Serial killer turned minister. His title, he calls himself, he goes, I started as son of Sam, but I'm now the son of hope. You know, there is hope for everyone. And he proclaims that message. You see, that's the stuff. That's the arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord can turn a serial killer from a Satan-worshipping, demonic murderer to an evangelist in a prison. That's the arm of the Lord. If he can do that for Sam Berkowitz, he can do that for you. Or David Berkowitz, he can do that for you. How about nationally? I read, I came across this this week too, just kind of reading, reading different things. I came across this article about a pastor that challenged his church to say, we're going to reach our community. we got to reach our community. So he asked everybody in the church to write down what point of contact do they have in their community. And then how do we start praying so that we could bring the message of hope and healing and forgiveness in Christ to our community. And this one little church ended up sharing the gospel with almost everybody in the community. And they had a giant baptism service where 900 people got baptized in the community. Mayor, police chief, fire chief. I mean, it was like transformation of the community. It's the arm of the Lord. This is it. This is what he's saying. This is how he's choosing to deal with it. What about globally, right? The whole world's in an uproar. But this is why we send missionaries. This is why we send people. This is why some of you need to go. Right? We go to the nations to tell the people. This is how God has chosen to reveal his arm. This is it. This is the solution. Now, and this is the connection then between the coming of Christ and the Great Commission, right? I have come to reveal God's power to transform people's hearts, so I need you to go and tell people. I need you to go. And I'll say it this way, and I want to close on this thought, and then we'll pray here. I was thinking, you know, if we do nothing with the gospel... And we just celebrate Christmas and we sing Christmas songs. We get together with our families. And then we, maybe we get bent out of shape because Walmart won't play Joy to the World or something. And we're standing up for Jesus. Hey, we want Walmart to play Joy to the World. Why are they taking this away? You know, and if that's it, if that's our only Christmas angst is that I have to say happy holidays to a clerk instead of Merry Christmas. If that's my only angst, I think I've missed the point. I think I've missed the point. The arm of the Lord has been revealed to free people. To set their hearts free. To forgive them. This is what the arm of the Lord is. This is how God chose to do it. And I think I'll mock Christmas if Christmas is only about singing songs. Because the point of Jesus coming into the world wasn't just so that we could sing songs once a year. The point of him coming into the world was to set people free. 
This is the solution to terrorism. This is the solution to pain. This is the solution to serial killers. This is the solution to a community that's lost its moral footing and its direction. This is the solution. We don't want to just esteem them. Yeah, you died. We want to believe it and take it out. That's Christmas. Would you pray with me? It's a great question, God, that you had Isaiah ask. Who has believed this message? It's a great question. Lord, we want to believe it, Lord. We don't want to place our hope in science. We don't want to place our hope in technology. We don't want to place our hope in politics. Lord, I know the people in Isaiah's time saw it as too weak of a response. They saw it as too thin. They saw it as not, not enough to deal with the Assyrians and to deal with the Babylonians and to deal with civil war. They didn't see it as enough. They wanted more. God, help us not to want more, but to recognize this is your response. This Christmas, we have an opportunity to share with people around us that they can be set free, that they can be healed. Lord, may we have courage to do it. God, I'm even just reminded now, just thinking of Jeff Thursday, standing on the steps of the courthouse, talking to people who dealing with the death of loved ones from cancer and proclaiming there's hope. There's hope that the death doesn't need to be the final story. There's hope in Christ. I, I think of the, the Webster singing these great songs of hope on the steps of our courthouse. I think of the Harrelson kids just playing and Karen leading people in singing songs of the glory of Christ. Lord, thank you for that. I pray that that work would have just casted seeds in our community The arm of the Lord has been revealed in Jesus. Lord, let us be bold this Christmas. But Lord, work in our hearts that we might believe it to be true. That we might be confident that this is your response. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for joining us at Kishwaukee Bible Church. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H, bible.org.